This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Our big news, which I've told you about before, but, you know, going to repeat myself. We joined Instagram, so please go there at IT Women's Podcast and follow us and leave a message if you like. Hope you've all been out in the sunshine and enjoying the tiny little increase in freedom. There are some McDonald's open today, so there's a bit of news. And um, I hope you've been having some nice outdoor times with small groups of socially distanced friends. Do get in touch with us, whether it's on Instagram or on our email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on Twitter at IT Women's Podcast and tell us what you've been up to and how you're feeling and how you are at this stage, because we do want to keep in touch with all your stories. Also, another bit of news that you might be interested in is that we've had another big night in coming up on Saturday and it's at eight o'clock this Saturday with the wonderful singer Lisa Hannigan. I know loads of you are going to want to join that. So listen, drop us an email and tell us why you want to see Lisa Hannigan on Saturday night and we will hopefully be able to send few of our readers, the Zoom link to join us on Saturday night. Email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Tell us why you want to see Lisa Hannigan and hopefully we'll be able to get you there. I just want to mention one thing I saw in relation to how this pandemic is affecting women particularly. It's something we've been trying to highlight over the last couple of months and two stories caught my eye. One in the Irish Times this week, which described how women's well-being has been significantly more harshly affected by the coronavirus crisis than men's, although, of course, men are suffering too. And these are, um, according to a report from the Central Statistics Office, which was published on Tuesday, and it found that women are more likely to be extremely concerned about their and someone else's health, more nervous about the future, significantly less satisfied with personal relationships and more likely to be smoking more and eating more junk food than men. The CSO's Social Impact of COVID-19 story, April 2020, finds that one in four women, 27.6%, are extremely concerned about somebody's health compared to one in five men. Women are also more likely to report being extremely concerned about their own health and maintaining social ties than male respondents were. So, Last month, three quarters of women said they felt very nervous at least a little of the time in the past four weeks compared with 61 
40% of men. The proportion of both men and women feeling downhearted or depressed at least a little of the time in the past four weeks has doubled since 2018. So they're quite stark sort of facts. And as I said, men are struggling too, but it is interesting to see how this is affecting women more. And in a British newspaper, an opinion writer was talking about uh, learning lessons about coronavirus from previous health emergencies like Ebola and that it's clear that humanitarian crises affect girls and young women the hardest. And she mentions issues like harassment, gender-based violence um, and access to education, how they disproportionately impact girls during crisis times. But what's often overlooked are the consequences that these issues can have on girls and women's mental health. Uh, We already know when girls don't have equal rights and opportunities, it directly affects their well-being. And in Britain, 40% of young women aged 14 to 21 say their mental health has deteriorated since lockdown. And I imagine uh, if you've got young daughters or indeed if there's people in that age bracket listening, which I know there are, so young women particularly are quite vulnerable at this time. It is Mental Health Awareness Week. And I think that's really important to talk about uh, there's lots of people close to me struggling. I've sometimes struggled myself. And it's just a reminder that we need to mind each other and appreciate that there are so many women whose already difficult lives have been made even more challenging at this time. I'm not sure exactly what we can do about it. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that talking about these things and sharing how we feel with people close to us and acknowledging it is always helpful. Now, what do we have for you today? Well, Jane Casey is one of several brilliant Irish women writing in the crime genre at the moment. And she joined me for a chat about her latest novel, The Cutting Place, which follows Detective Maeve Kerrigan, who's a very popular person in her books. She joined me from her home in London, where she lives with her kids and her criminal barrister husband. That comes in very handy for plot lines, I imagine. And she talked to me about crime, about lockdown, about feminism and loads more. Here she is, Jane Casey. Jane, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. What is lockdown life like in London? Well, it's for me as as a writer, I mean, I work from home anyway. So the big difference is making everyone else work to my schedule. Um, I think my family (laughs) are slightly in shock about how I work and what I do all day. So Uh, I'm trying to just kind of keep to the same sort of routine that I have usually. And my husband is off work and he's doing the bulk of the home education and exercising the children and all the rest of it. Um, I'm finishing off a book at the moment. So I've promised him that once I've done that, then I will be available to do parenting. But at the moment, the book is coming first. Excellent. Just as it should be. Um, How is he finding the homeschooling and, and being the, it sounds pretty much like the full time parent at the moment. Yeah, he, you know what? He's absolutely brilliant. Like he is, he hasn't complained at all. Um, he's taking it in his stride. And I, I think like it maybe just suits his personality. You know, he's good. If you give him a task, he'll just do it. So that, that's what he's doing. Um, but I'm, I know a lot of people are really struggling with it. And I do struggle when my children want to come and talk to me. And I have to explain to them, no, I'm working. And I know it just looks like I'm sitting, staring into space. 
But actually, this is how mommy does her job. (laughs) (laughs) So it's educational for everyone. I saw a great sign, actually, I think it was on Twitter of a person just said, "Um, mommy can't speak. It's a sign on a door. And then it's like, if it's about this, here's the answer. It's all these different multiple choice kind of possible answers for your questions. So that might be a way to go. Definitely. And also they're, they're definitely like they have adapted to the routine. So I know at like 11.05, somebody will say, mommy, can I have a snack? Like, I know that's guaranteed no matter what else is going on. Their internal clock is definitely working the whole time. Um, And listen, what's the level of compliance like in London? Are you hearing it's different from, say, what you're hearing from family in in Ireland? Or what's your observations from that point of view? Um, I think, like, for me, it's been really interesting because I have... I get a lot of my news from Ireland. I like I watch RTE online. I and I uh, get the Irish Times, and I like I'm, I'm definitely kind of connected in Ireland in a way, even though I'm in London. Um, that I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be here. Like they wouldn't be people in London wouldn't be aware of what's happening in Ireland. And yet, for anyone who is, it was almost like this kind of a those two different narratives. Um, and the messaging in Ireland is so clear and so kind of comprehensive and caring. And here it just, it, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people um, arguing over kind of things that, that sort of don't matter at the moment, but they also do. Um, like who said what when and who, who, who should be doing what. Locally, people have been amazing. And actually, I think there are some real positives to take out of the fact that people are helping one another and getting to know their neighbours a bit better. And, you know, um, I just hope that at the end of all this, we kind of look back and go, well, actually, we all learned something from that. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of learning to be done, definitely. Your work ethic doesn't seem to have um, been diminished by your lockdown anyway. It sounds like you're just getting the head down. I mean, you are quite prolific. This is your ninth book, The Cutting Pace, in the Maeve Kerrigan series anyway. And that's like a, a book a year since the first one came out. How do you maintain that? Um, Fear. Uh, I'm, I'm frightened of deadlines and um, I, I, that's, you know, I, I love writing and I'm very lucky. I know I'm massively privileged to get to do this for a living. Um, so I kind of, I try not to complain about the, the deadlines and the writing aspect of things. And also every time I finish a book, every time a book comes out, I get messages from readers saying, I really enjoyed it. When's the next one coming? So there's always like, there's, they don't even wait for a second message. That's all, that's what I always get from people, which is lovely. Like that's what you want writing series fiction. You want there to be that hunger and that enjoyment of your characters. And um, it's just, uh, it can put a little bit of extra pressure on. <laughs> well, before we get back to Maeve Kerrigan, I should ask you, I know that you moved home briefly uh, for a little while. It didn't really work out. And then you moved back to London again. Have you had any thoughts about whether you'd prefer to be locked down in Ireland or London? I'd massively prefer to be locked down in Ireland um, for all the two kilometre journeys from your home and, and everything else, for all the restrictions. I, I mean, I, I really miss home and I'm very conscious of the fact that I can't even go and kind of look through my parents' window and wave at them. Um, so that's something that's really hard and like the emotional aspect of all of this like you can get very caught up in the practical side and in doing your work and um you can distract yourself but actually it's it's a really horrible situation and I do miss being at home and I miss I mean I think I'm so proud to see the way Irish people are handling it and the way that you know um 
there's just a community effort um, and you have a real sense of kind of national pride um, that I, I think is lacking maybe here. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, you want to go home. When something like this happens, you really want to be at home. Um, so it is it is a bit of a shame to be here instead. Well, you're managing it well. But listen, back to Maeve Kerrigan. Tell us a bit about her for people who haven't read the series and maybe are discovering you for the first time. You have legions of readers, but obviously new ones coming on board all the time too. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Like a lot of people are, they come in at this point and they're like, oh, nine books. I'm not sure that I <laughs> have the, the headspace for for nine books to catch up. But the, the, like the first thing is, I would say, I, I always write every book for the new reader. So that they can come in and say, oh, you know, do I like this character? Am I interested? And that they don't have masses to catch up on. Like they, it, it's kind of given to them. They understand what's happening. So Maeve is, um, she is a London Irish detective in the Metropolitan Police. So her parents are Irish. Um, her parents kind of come into a lot of the books. They would sort of make little cameo appearances. Um, and she has been brought up almost like an Irish child, but in London. Um, so she has this kind of dual identity and maybe that makes her a little bit of a misfit, um, which I think is really helpful as a detective that you want someone who is not necessarily someone who belongs automatically. But somebody who feels a little bit insecure and a bit of an outsider actually makes a very good detective because they're always analysing what other people are doing and saying and they don't take things for granted. So Maeve is... Um, She's a, a complex character. She is uh, very brave. She asks a lot of herself um, and she has uh, a very warm heart, I would say. Um, and I think that comes across in, in this book in particular, in The Cutting Place. And where did the inspiration for her come from? Um, I really wanted to write about how different the two cultures are. Like, that's something that I'm so conscious of. Like, I've been in London on and off um, since 2003 and it still feels like a very odd place and it still feels I think Irish people have a much better grasp of how English people are than English people do in reverse maybe because uh, we're sort of exposed more to English culture I don't know but um, there's definitely there's a there's a gulf between between the two cultures and I really wanted to kind of explore how somebody would manage mixing those two together and also that she's she's a, a an attractive young woman in a very sexist environment in the police um and I I do like I really wanted to write I always I'm interested by the challenges that women have specifically um in whatever they're doing so uh for her, you know, she's she has to deal with a lot of other people's assumptions about her before she even gets to do her job. Um, so that was something I really wanted to write about. Well, tell us about The Cutting Place, because she's basically investigating some elite gentlemen's clubs, which is a, an interesting area to get into. The research must have been very interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, um, I think, probably the most uh, overtly feminist of, of all of the books. Like, I think you know, I have no problem with being called a feminist and being a feminist. That's why, like, I don't think it's it's a, a bad thing to be at all. But this is one where it definitely it sort of comes to the fore because the people that she's dealing with are the worst kind of men. They are very wealthy. They're very privileged. And they just think they can buy their way out of any situation that they find themselves in. Um, so the book begins 
with the discovery of some body parts on on the banks of the Thames in the centre of London. And they turn out to belong to a journalist, a young woman called Paige Hargreaves. And she has been investigating a particular gentleman's club called the Chiron Club. And in the course of her investigations has run up against some very unpleasant people. So Maeve is sort of following in her footsteps, trying to work out what she found out and trying to work out why someone might have wanted to kill her because of what she found out or if there's another story there. Okay. And did you have to go to a lot of gentlemen's clubs to make sure you got all the finer details, right? And were you let in? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there are a few gentlemen's clubs in Dublin and I've been in a couple of them and they are very gracious establishments. They are very, like, we're not talking about, you know, we're talking about the clubs on Stephen's Green. We're not talking about kind of back alleys. Um, They're very dignified places. I wouldn't say that they were exactly the same as the Chiron Club, uh, which I which I fully invented. But then, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a new story about the the President's Club, which was a club of um, businessmen. And they would have this gala dinner every year in London and uh, have celebrity performers. And they behaved appallingly. And I think that was where the seeds of the Chiron Club came from for me. That this this this. I think we've all encountered men like that who just think that, you know, they don't have values themselves. They just have money uh, so they can use their money to make everything go away if they need to. Um, So that was what I really wanted to write about. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth and truly delicious chocolate experience. And you mentioned your feminism there. Does it feel like now uh, was the right time for a book that kind of was more overtly uh, looking at that and the treatment of women and misogyny and sexism? Yeah, I mean, I I think um, like I, I'm always interested in it. And I think like part of the inspiration for this book was um, the murder of a Swedish journalist called Kim Wall in 2017. She was, people might remember her because she was um, murdered on a submarine uh, by a man that she had gone to interview. So off the coast of Copenhagen, she was actually, she was she was murdered in circumstances that we still don't really know about, but he has been convicted of her murder. So that was how she died. But what struck me about that story was that because she was a freelance journalist, she had to go and get the story before she could have the support of a newspaper or a magazine or, you know, an editorial backup for her. So she was very much on her own and she was worried about that, that she had to go and do these kind of investigations and then do the work and then bring it to someone um, to have the kind of support that maybe journalists used to get from their media organisation. Like they would, they, people would know where they were, they would know who they were talking to. And it just occurred to me that these are the unintended consequences of things like the change in the way that media is absorbed now. Um, that freelance journalism of that sort where you're investigating might become just too dangerous for young women to do like that even despite the fact that they might have opportunities and they might have ideas that they just actually wouldn't be able to do it because it's not safe for them in the same way that women generally don't go out jogging late at night because you know if you just wouldn't take that particular risk so I really wanted to kind of that was sort of a starting point for me and then I also wanted to write about privilege and men and to write a story that 
uh, to come up with a story that I think a young female journalist would find compelling enough to take risks to investigate. So um, it felt like the right thing to write. It felt like, um, I think often crime fiction gets tagged as being not particularly feminist. Um, certainly crime on TV has been challenged for being all about dead women and, um, you know, women being used as, as an aspect of a story that, you know, they're not really the focus of the story. That's not what this is at all. And I think there's obviously part of me that wants to say that, you know, that there's a good reason for this to happen this way and that actually it's drawing attention to um, aspects of the world that maybe people aren't aware of or would rather not know about. You're also involved in something called the Killer Women Collective, which is a brilliant title, whoever came up with that. Tell us about that and why it's important in terms of building the community of women who write the kind of books that you do. Um, we have about 20 members. Uh, we're all female crime writers. We're all um, based in the UK at the moment. We're sort of looking at having some satellite memberships around the place. Um, but they are... <sighs> There's, there's power in numbers. Um, so we can do a lot more together than we can on our own. Um, so we run a festival every year. We're running a mentorship scheme for um, new writers who are on, of low income or of um, a minority background because they're very poorly represented in crime fiction at the moment. And it's just a way of um, gathering together to kind of do some good in this genre. I think... Um, Crime is actually really well, has always been very kind to women. If you think about like the big female crime writers, um, they're still being read today. People like Agatha Christie is being read. A lot of her male contemporaries are well forgotten and possibly deservedly so. But like women have always thrived in, in the world of writing about crime. And The Killer Women is one of the things that we want to do is to bring more people into that and to create more opportunities. So it's it's a very positive thing to have. Um, very often, like I have seen panels of male writers and no female writers or one female writer when you when you do book events, uh, and they get shouted down very often. It's kind of hard to have your voice heard sometimes, just because men are. Louder, often, just genuinely louder, not because they're deliberately trying to shout you down, but they just have more volume and they have more confidence and they hit the audience quicker than, than you do. Um, so having a team of women behind you is actually a great help and being able to set up festivals that, that work for all the participants is really important. Um, you know, you talk about that kind of uh, male domination in, in some ways. In other ways, there's a lot of amazing, successful women uh, writing writing crime books. Did you ever consider writing your books under a male pseudonym? That that that, that might be something you would do? No, I, I never. It never occurred to me. I think um, maybe the kind of books that I write are, are so strongly about a female character that I don't think it would help to say, to sort of neutralize my persona. I think... Maybe if I was writing something like a really high tech thriller that we associate more with male writers, maybe maybe it would come up then. But I think um, there's no hardship in being a female writer in crime. And actually, I know a lot of male writers who have kind of they have a neutral identity or even a female pen name to pursue their career because um, they feel uneasy about writing about some of these things as men even though they're very sensitive and very good writers, but I think they feel that they would rather not be in the foreground as a man writing about this stuff. 
Um, as a crime writer, are you someone who listens uh, addictively to those uh, true crime podcasts? I have friends who seem to be under this lockdown listening to a lot more of that kind of stuff. I, I personally don't get it, but it seems to be a thing. Are you into them? I'm totally into them. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm absolutely obsessed. Um, I, yeah, I love it. I love um, the, there's the two different kinds. One where you're being told a fascinating story. And the other where there's an actual active kind of investigation and you get really drawn into it and things change week on week. I think um, the classic was Serial. It was the, the first one that, that really, really hit the mark um, in that way. I just love them. I love I love thinking about crime. I love I find it compelling. I find it um, fascinating. And I don't know why, particularly in lockdown, maybe it's just that it's a good distraction for us because it is so absorbing yeah have you got any ones that you'd recommend for people i love the west cork podcast which is on audible you see i say i'm not into them but then i really liked west cork and then the, with the other one in australia i really liked that one too what was that one the teacher's pet was yes that? i love that that is a phenomenal effort and again like i love that as they were making it it changed because they were drawing in you know, people would call them up and say, actually, I was there and I remember that. I've never spoken to anyone about this, but now I'm prepared to tell my story. I mean, that's electric. Yeah. Is there any other ones at the moment that we might not have heard of that you're aware of? Um, I'm listening to a lot of Canadian true crime. So there's a massive, um, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation do some fantastic investigations and podcasts. Um, and I'm really enjoying uh, listening to some of those. There's a, a great one about... Um, a town where people were accused of satanic rituals um, un- unjustly. Uh, and there was a whole kind of moral panic about it, a satanic panic, if you like. Um, and that is, that's fascinating to listen to. What's that one called? It is literally called Satanic Panic. And the oh, podcast is Uncover. So it's a whole series um, called Uncover. And they do a different Canadian story. But Canadian crime is fascinating. Tell us about the book you're currently writing. So the book I'm currently doing is a standalone, which means that uh, it's it's like not part of the series. Um, it is about a young female barrister um, called Ingrid, who uh, has, she is um, aware that somebody is trying to kill her and she has to turn to one of the worst people she's ever met in her life in order to save her own life. Um some, one of her ex-clients comes to her rescue. Um, but whether she can trust him or not is another question. OK, and your husband is an actual real life barrister. So have you been getting a lot of inspiration from his colleagues? Should they be worried? Uh, no, no, I have to say I very nicely. A lot of female barristers have kindly talked to me about their work and why it's different from his work. Um, and again, like there's a whole cultural thing to explore there about how women behave at the bar and how um the kind of threats that they might be under from the people that they have to be with there's, there's quite like a an intimate relationship if you're representing someone you can be shut in a cell with them under court talking to them face to face after they've just had like the worst news they could possibly have and for a woman to be in that position there's there's a kind of a vulnerability there again like it always these are the themes that keep coming up for me again and again is you know what why is it different for women to do this job what what is the thing that makes it difficult for them that they have to overcome before they even start doing the job and when will you be finished that and you'll be back uh, being a homeschool teacher and 
giving your husband a bit of a <laughs> a bit of time to himself. <laughs> yeah, he can do. He's doing Skype hearings at the moment, so oh he's he has to dress up his top half as barrister and then his bottom half as running kit. So <laughs> that's that's how he's living his life. Um, I should be finished it in a week, but I keep saying that and then adding another chapter. Okay, so you might you might get through this whole thing without having to uh, actually put on your mortarboard for your or do any giving out to people over a kitchen table, which I, I've actually abandoned my homeschool now. I've decided I can't do both. I can't work from home and also be a teacher. So I'm letting them, they have all the materials and I'm letting them be responsible and do what they need to do. And that's and all I, I can do. Great. Like, I think that's what they need. They need, I think children really thrive when they have a little bit of boredom and a lot of opportunity. And they'll probably come out with something amazingly creative at the end of it. And far more creative than they would if you were doing your daily homeschooling. This yeah, is how I'm, I'm just, selling this to my husband anyway. I just feel like I'm just more interested in keeping the peace and having a happy house and feeling like we're all together and that that's a nice experience. I just would be terrible if they came to the end of this and what they remember is me shouting from my bedroom down at them to shut up, which has happened quite a lot. So I'm, I think uh, my, my lockdown motto is everyone fed and nobody dead. Oh my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's a great note. Such a crime writer. <laughs> Everyone fed and nobody dead. Yes, we should all embrace that. Jane Casey, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that's it for today. Thanks to my guest, Jane Casey. And remember, please do get in touch with anything you'd like us to cover. You can go to Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. That's the same address for Twitter. And you can also email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. And we always appreciate some feedback. So if you want to give us a review there on iTunes as well, that would be great. The podcast is produced by me, Roshi Ningle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, stay safe and thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.